Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. It's a question that everyone asks at some point when they're growing up. Where do babies come from? And we all kind of know the answer, at least as far as we can remember the details from biology class. But for thousands of years, ordinary people and scientists had no idea where babies came from. I mean, they knew, of course, that people had sex, and they knew that sometimes babies resulted from that. But how? They couldn't say. People like Isaac Newton and Leonardo da Vinci, who changed science, who were great thinkers, would have been shocked by what an elementary school kid could tell them today about where babies come from. Edward Dolnick is author of the book The Seeds of Life, which charts the centuries-long quest to understand how new people are made and why it took us so long to figure it out. And we should say, there will be some discussion of sex here, probably, not too surprisingly. Edward, welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much. So I mentioned uh, Leonardo da Vinci, who drew these very detailed pictures of people having sex, of a woman's womb. And he was obviously very interested in what was going on, how this happened. Can you give me a sense of like, in the 1400s, what was he getting right and what was he getting wrong? Well, um, both, in, in both categories. He was an astonishing genius. It's around 1500 when he gets fascinated with the human body. Um, he's doing these studies of anatomy at the same time as he's painting the Mona Lisa. Um, to study bodies in those days, you first had to get a body, and that wasn't easy. You had to de- make a deal with uh, with a hangman to slip mm. you a corpse or, or something like this. So it's gruesome work, and you're you're working away in the dark and the cold because you don't want to be doing this uh, in in summer's heat. Right. And, and Leonardo's a squeamish fellow, besides, so he's cutting these bodies open, uh, trying to work up his nerve and seeing what he can find. Um, and some of what he sees uh, makes sense to him, and some of his drawings uh, just just show things that that just weren't so. When he uh, he did make a famous cutaway drawing of a man and woman having sex, so this is from his imagination because you would have needed uh, first of all a living couple and then some kind of MRI X-ray scan or something. Or something. Right. He's, <laughs> right? He he's he's drawing like their internal organs while this is happening, right? So yeah, he couldn't have seen it. No, he didn't see it, but it shows what he thought you would see. Mm-hmm. And what he thought you would see includes the various bits that we know, but also some strange things that aren't there. There was a tube in the man, he thought, that ran down your spinal column. It carried semen from the brain uh, down to the man's penis. This tube doesn't exist. And in women, uh, Leonardo didn't draw ovaries. He didn't know there were such things. Mm. Um, But on the other hand, he did put in some things that aren't there. He had (laughs) uh, an imaginary tube for women, too. This one went from uterus to breasts um, because there was a half-baked or not even half theory about menstrual blood was somehow converted to mother's milk Mm. and it would pass through through this passageway is how it happened. Well, it's interesting about the issue of um, the mother's milk and menstruation because in some ways people were trying to find explanations for things they knew to be true. Like, for example, you know, um, when women are nursing, they don't get their period, but nobody understood how that was happening. So, as you said, there was this thought of, like, maybe blood is becoming milk. Is that Could that be happening? 
one of the things to bear in mind is that these are all smart people right. trying to figure out what's genuinely a mystery. Uh, now that we know the answer, uh, it's easy for us to say, oh, of course. But if, if you try to imagine yourself back to not knowing, mm-hmm. I mean, it really is quite strange that from a bit of huffing and puffing several months ago, there comes to be <laughs> a new human being in the world. It's We all know it happens, but it is kind of an amazing thing. Right. Okay, so let's fast forward to the 1600s. There's a guy named William Harvey, who you write about. He was very friendly uh, with the English king, Charles I. Um, and he was super fascinated with this question of where babies come from. Like, how does this happen? He investigated extensively. So, you know, bring me up to the 1600s here. What did he think and how did he go about trying to figure this out? So Harvey's a great hero in the history of medicine and in his own mind as well. He's he's a vain (laughs) fellow. Um, It's Harvey who's figured out that the heart is a pump, a a giant advance in medicine. And now he's on to the next greatest thing. He's going to be the one who explains uh, conception and development, how babies come to be, or at least this is his plan. But you can't study human beings directly, and so he decides he will look at animals. And because he's pals with the king, as you say, and the king is a big hunter, there are all sorts of deer around to be looked at. So the king and uh, Harvey go out one day. They go out in uh, mating season for deer. They wait for deer to mate. Now uh, Harvey rushes over, and they choose a deer that they will sacrifice and cut her open, and they'll look in her womb, and they'll see, Harvey believes, some glistening embryo that he'll flick out into the sunlight, and this will be the first step in, in solving this mystery. And he cuts the deer open, and then steam rises into the cold air, and the king crowds round, and the king's deer men peek over over Harvey's shoulders to see what's going on. And they look and they look, but they don't see anything Right to their astonishment. They can't figure it out. That on the one hand, there has to be something tangible there, because there will soon be a new deer born. But on the other hand, there's nothing, and they can't sort out that mystery. It's so interesting that, like, the king isn't on this, that that the king is also, you know, I don't know if he was normally into science, but he's also like, yeah, what's going on here? How does the scientific process work? And he is actually out on these hunts trying to figure it out. Well, well, Charles was was a smart and curious fellow, but this was not an abstract question like what are the orbits of planets. Mm-hmm. This was a question that nearly everyone had wondered about at some time or other. Where does new life come from? How does it come to be? There must have been things, though, that were confusing. Like, for example, why did some people have sex but not have children? Or why did some people have sex and have twins? Like, how how did things happen? I mean, I know what you're saying, like, they knew in general about a sort of general rule. But there were things that didn't fit that rule that must have confused people. They confused people like mad. And what you would do is make up some kind of, of uh, folklore explanation of it. So to do with fertility and infertility, say, there was every kind of theory that you would have babies if you went to bed at the time of a full moon or Mm. a new moon Mm. or early in the day or late in the day Mm -hmm. or facing to the north Mm. or while a breeze blew in the scent of (laughs) lavender or if you had eaten some particular food Mm -hmm. or maybe not even a food. Uh, In Italy, they thought if you ate rose petals, uh, that was a, a good way to to get pregnant. Hmm. I can't remember. It was either red roses brought boys and white brought 
brought girls or vice versa, hmm. but, but all kinds of theories like this. People doing their best to come up with, with the patterns to explain these, these odd features of right. everyday life. Right. And twins, did people have thoughts on where twins came from? Twins were a huge mystery, and once again, there was there was every kind of theory. One was that, uh, well, this this is uh, lustful couples who have gone to bed twice uh, right away, <laughs> or a particularly potent male. Every, every kind of guesswork. And I should say, because it's an important part of this story, that in the 1600s, 1700s, and all the millennia before that, virtually every scientist asking about babies in life was male. And mm. not only male, but a male who took for granted that men were pretty great <laughs> and women weren't up to much. And so when you were trying to solve this particular mystery, to write off half the population was, was a formula for trouble. So when you say they assumed men were pretty great, did that say to them that basically um, the, the baby-making process was basically about men? Do you know what I mean? The woman was carrying it, but... That was just like, you know, a technicality. What, what these male scientists said explicitly was that if you were to look at any creative product whatsoever, a poem or a house or a tool or, or a piece of pottery, that was made by some male artist. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was the way the world worked. Mm -hmm. Now, when you looked at the greatest and most elaborate creation of all, a new human being, it stood to reason they all insisted, that that too would right. be the creation of a male. Right, right. And the woman's role in this uh, would be, as you say, to, to nurture that, mm -hmm. that seed that the, that the male had, had created and mm -hmm. planted. Mm -hmm. uh, you have this great uh, line in the book about, I mean, in the 1600s, 1700s, you really got a scientific revolution underway. And people are learning all this stuff about physics, about astronomy, about calculus. And then you have this great quote, the bold men of science raced off to take on the mystery of life and promptly face-planted. <laughs> Did people who thought, well, we're unlocking the mysteries of the universe, surely we can figure this out. It's all around us. You know, did they think this is totally doable? That, that's exactly how it went. And that's what got me into this book, in fact. I had written earlier about Isaac Newton and Galileo and people like this. And they had solved all these cosmic mysteries mm -hmm. about comets and suns and planets. And those are, are remote things and ones you can't touch because they're so far off. And now they thought they would turn their attention to bugs and babies and plants and butterflies. And this would be easy. Oh, right. They were, they right. were going to rack up one more big triumph just in the same line that they'd already done. Right. And they were astonished to find that, that planets were easy and plants were hard. They, they had no idea it would be that way. Right. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Edward Dalnick, author of the book The Seeds of Life, about how we finally came to understand where babies come from. It may have been not super hard. Um, you know, I, I don't want to characterize it, but it, it was obviously doable to make advances in calculus and physics and astronomy and so on. But a lot of those things did not come without the pushback of the church and religious authorities. And I just wonder, where does religion factor into this whole question that scientists had been pursuing for hundreds of years of where babies came from? Religion played a giant part in this story. Um, it played a big part in the, in the astronomy and physics story, too, we know from Galileo. But there, religion mostly helped, actually, because the scientists all believed that God was a mathematician. And it turned out, for reasons nobody understands quite to this day, 
that the inanimate world really does follow mathematical laws. The Mm. comets do trace perfect ellipses and gravity does follow an equation that you can write down Mm. in a few lines. But now when it came to biology, they had this same belief that everything uh, was designed by God, the creator. And now when they turned to life, that made for all kinds of trouble. Mm. For one thing, God was not only the creator, all these scientists believed, but he was the only creator. And so that simple observation made for giant trouble, because if God was the only creator, how could it be that ordinary men and women were creating Hmm. life? That was God's work. How could that be? And to come up with an answer to that question, they invented what was taken to be the deepest wisdom for centuries, but to us sounds like the most outlandish answer possible. What they said is, well, God is the only creator. It's not when when a man and woman today think they're creating life, they're kidding themselves. They're really not. What happened was God created all life at the beginning with Adam and Eve, and he then he put all the people who would ever live inside Adam or inside Eve. There was huh. a big fight. Just little this. little mini versions of them. Little mini versions like Russian dolls, and within each <laughs> mini me was an, was a minier one and yeah, a minier one. Yeah. Everybody who had ever lived all in Adam or in Eve, and it was a big battle. They called themselves Ovis and Spermis. Who, who was it Adam <laughs> or was it Eve who had all those Russian dolls? But that's how they wriggled out of this um, God the only creator business. And for them this was an absolutely urgent question. It wasn't a silly thing or a spinoff. This was the first thing you had to answer. Who's doing the creating here? Okay. So, you know, we've been through, I mean, thousands of years of human history. People have not answered this. When would you say the really big breakthrough started coming? Well, it takes until the late 1800s uh, for this story to be resolved. One of the first big breakthroughs was earlier than that. Uh, Leeuwenhoek, his name is a Dutchman, looks through a microscope, the first microscope. He's the first to have seen these new micro worlds, and he looks through at at drops of pond water and rainwater and blood and scrapings from his teeth, everything you can think of, and he sees all these creatures no one has ever suspected. Yeah, they're not what people thought they were, as simple as people thought they were, like pond water or whatever. People had thought that water would be just water because— With this notion of of God, the perfect creator, having made everything in the world, why would God have bothered to create things that people can't see? Mm -hmm. Because people are the point of it all. Mm -hmm. That that was the notion. At any rate, Leeuwenhoek invents the microscope. He's thrilled with it. He's looking at everything. He goes to bed with his wife one night. He jumps up. uh, He tells us proudly. He goes running over (laughs) to his microscope, holding this goopy semen sample. He looks at it under the microscope. Uh, we don't know what Mrs. Lewinhoek is saying uh, <laughs> uh, at this time. He looks through uh, his microscope at the semen, and there he sees what no one has ever seen before, these little swimming tadpole creatures. Mm-hmm. And now he's thrilled because people and he have been trying to figure out where new life comes from, where babies come from. And now to see these vigorous swimming things, they certainly seem alive. It seems like a giant clue. Mm. This is around 1700, and he's almost got it. And then he looks some more, and he thinks some more, and he says, you know, on second thought, that can't be right, because whenever I look at anything, at pond water, at rainwater, I always see lots of little things swimming around in it. So these things that a minute ago I was saying must have to do with life, I I must have had it wrong. Actually, they must be just another kind of parasite, Mm. although this one has chosen a peculiar place to live. (laughs) Right, right, right. Well, it sounds like much in the way that astronomy, you know, depended on the tools of astronomy, 
that, you know, until you had microscopes, until you had certain things that allowed you to see very, very small, you know, eggs and sperm and stuff, it, it was hard to imagine that those things had inside them what they do have inside them. New tools are, are a giant part of the story. Uh, the microscope coming along is really, really important. This is a story that hinges on sperm and egg. Uh, an egg is just at the limit of what you could see with your naked eye if you were had good fortune. It's about the size of the dot over a typed letter I. Hmm. But but it's, it's the biggest cell in the body. But the sperm is the smallest cell in the hmm. body. So, so the ratio in weight of an egg to a sperm cell that fertilizes it is a million to one. Wow. It's the difference between wow. a, a Thanksgiving turkey and a housefly. So it's a, no wonder that they were so hard to find. So... Who then was the first person who really knew? Because you said Leeuwenhoek looked and he thought, maybe sperm are part of life. Oh, no, maybe they're not. So who was the first person who realized, no, a sperm meets an egg and this is the beginning and it implants and, you know, like had the first sense of this is what really definitively happens and they were right about it. So that comes late. This is 1875. There's a... a grouchy German scientist that no one has ever heard of named uh, Oscar Hartwig, who was working in a, uh, in a lab in, in Naples, Italy. Uh, they were studying sea urchins, uh, not because of any particular fascination with sea urchins, but sea urchins happen to have big eggs and they're easy to gather and they're transparent. You can see inside them, like looking at a construction site uh, through a peephole. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you have experimental subjects at the end of the day. They're also delicious. Uh, this, this was also... <laughs> that Just also a side a benefit, yeah. <laughs> but, but all the scientists in the lab had discovered that side benefit. At any rate, Hartwig one day is looking through his microscope at one of these transparent sea urchin eggs, and he pushes a sea urchin sperm cell near it, and now the nucleus of that uh, sperm cell makes its way somehow inside the, the egg, and one nucleus swims towards the other, Hartwick is watching this, and then they meet, and he's he's the first one to have ever seen that, huh. and he catches on now that ah, it's not that the sperm cell is is a parasite or or something like that. It, it's it's part of or, mm-hmm. or the the precursor of what's going to be a new organism. That's what's going on. Do you think that this discovery has anything? to teach scientists now who are still trying to figure out certain kinds of mysteries about the universe. Is there anything to learn from literally thousands of years spent trying to figure out where babies came from? Well, there's a lot to learn. Um, One thing to learn is that um, we we look back on our forebears and we say, uh, how silly of them, taking ourselves as as the end of the line of progress. We, we always think each generation thinks that the escalator comes to our floor and there it stops. <laughs> That's right. But, but That's, we've achieved perfection now. <laughs> but we're guaranteed that things that some things we don't know which. Um, and that's the beauty of it. We're guaranteed that future generations will look back on us and say how silly of them. Mm-hmm. And one likely example you think is is uh, is consciousness, ideas. We don't understand now where ideas come from, where do hopes and dreams come from. We know that there's that the brain is a physical thing, and somehow that physical thing gives rise to our hopes and our ambitions. Mm-hmm. But we don't know how to bridge the gap. How does it happen? And, and our forebears in this baby story understood that you start with men and women and, and tissues and fluids, and somehow you, you end up with life. But they couldn't figure out 
how does it happen? How does mm-hmm. it come to be? Mm-hmm. And perhaps there's some notion akin to player pianos, some analogy, some some model that, that we're not capable of, of seeing right. yet right. that will resolve this. And maybe in the future, uh, 10-year-olds will know where right. ideas come from. <laughs> right, right. Edward Dolnick is the author most recently of the book, The Seeds of Life. Edward, thank you so much for being here. Well, my pleasure. Thanks very much. Edward Dolnick mentioned Leonardo da Vinci's kind of crazy ideas about how reproduction works. He may have been off about where babies come from, but he did come up with a lot of new ideas and ways of looking at the world. We recently talked with Walter Isaacson about the secret to da Vinci's creativity, and you can hear that interview at our website, innovationhub.org. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. About 15 years ago, Jeff Karp was a young scientist, and he was sitting in lab one day when he saw something that surprised him. Spider-Man. It was like this Spider-Man action figure attached to the ceiling. But Spider-Man wasn't on his ceiling. He was in a picture on a colleague's desk, and the picture was looking out at him from one of the most prestigious science journals out there, Nature. I think it was probably the first time that any, like, you know, action figure had ever appeared in a, a nature journal. Carp, who's now an associate professor at Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital and at Harvard Medical School, couldn't quite believe what he was seeing. Not surprisingly, he wanted to know what any of us would want to know. How do you get a Spider-Man action figure into a top-level science journal? Turns out, you tape him to the ceiling in a very crafty way. So I went and checked out that paper, and the authors had um, take some learnings from how geckos attach to surfaces, you know, even like a single toe, they can hold on to a, a vertical surface or a ceiling, for example. Uh, and they had mimicked that and created a synthetic tape that they used to kind of stick Spider-Man to the ceiling. And that really opened up the, my world of, of uh, this whole new world of, uh, of bio-inspiration. So back up here for a second. Geckos. How do they stick to ceilings? Well, they capitalize on these very weak attractions that different objects naturally have for each other. And that attraction is generally so weak that we don't notice it. But geckos have figured out how to maximize it. They have all these little hairs on their feet that if you actually look at the hairs under a microscope, you realize they're more like little pillars. And the little pillars are made up of even tinier pillars. So we've got all this weak attraction between the gecko's foot pillars and this smooth wall that they're trying to climb up. But remember, they've got tons of these pillars and tons of these weak connections. And what that does is when you put that onto a surface, it can get into all the nooks and crannies on a surface and maximizes the contact. So you've got your geckos with their special mini pillars on their feet, which allow them to stick to almost anything. And the scientists had taken that idea to build a tape that was super strong, but was not hard to take off, which can come in handy. So think about ripping tape off of a piece of paper, for example, and the damage that that could do to an important document. It would be nice to have a piece of tape that didn't do any damage. But Jeff Karp was not working on important documents. He was working on medicine-related projects. And he started to realize the power that the gecko approach could have for the human body. 
because I had been talking to a lot of um, doctors, you know, clinicians, uh, and and it was really apparent to me there was a ton of problems in medicine where sutures and staples were just subpar. They weren't working. They had significant limitations. And so immediately thought that if we could develop a biodegradable gecko-inspired tape that could be implanted anywhere in the body and stick to tissues, that this may be able to address uh, a lot of problems in medicine. CARP did develop that tape for medical uses, but his lab also started down a path that's becoming increasingly important for science, pulling inspiration out of nature. So borrowing from millions of years of these crafty evolutionary adaptations. And it turned out the gecko tape was only the beginning. This led us to develop a a new tissue glue, which was inspired by sandcastle worms in the sea that sit on rocks, and as the surf hits them, they remain attached, uh, as well as slugs and snails that you sometimes see on the surface of a leaf, uh, and it's raining and they're not moving, they're kind of stuck there. And through inspiration from these creatures and understanding the mechanisms of how they um, they interact with surfaces, we developed a tissue glue that can attach to almost any tissue in the body. Um, and this glue has actually advanced all the way to human clinical testing. So right now it's undergoing a, a clinical trial in Europe as part of a company, Gecko Biomedical, um, that's testing it for vascular reconstruction. And if all goes well, it, it could be on the market in the near future. So let me take a minute with that tissue glue. I went into Carp's lab with a couple of his undergrads to see how this glue works. My name is Christian Panicha, and I am a research intern at the lab. My name is Yang Sheng Liu, and I am an undergraduate research intern here. So in particular, we are trying to solve this ventricular septal defect, or VSD. This is when there is a hole right in the middle of the wall of your heart, which will cause the blood to flow from the left chamber and right chamber and vice versa. And this has many complications to the patient. Fixing this problem in newborns is nearly impossible. And it's tough on adults, too. Because basically, a doctor has to put a bunch of stitches into your heart, which is traumatic for a body. CARP's solution is glue, and a very special glue, one that works even in the really wet environment of the heart. That's why we look to nature for creatures such as slugs, mussels, sandcastle worms. They secrete these glues, which allow them to stick in wet environments. So you plug a hole in the heart with glue, no stitches, which means the body has a lot less healing to do. So now we can actually see the glue in action. Here we just have a simple tube to mimic a blood vessel. And in a little piece of plastic piping, they made a hole, they spread on the glue, which basically has the consistency of honey, and they dried it with a UV light. Okay, we're putting our UV glasses, okay. So you can see the glue has hardened. Oh yeah, Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, it's hard, yep. Patching up that little hole. All right, so now we're gonna put water through it and just hope that it doesn't come out the hole part, right? A hole in the heart, repaired with glue, inspired, by slugs. So now let's go back to my discussion with the head of the lab, Jeff Karp, a professor at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We've been really inspired by um, the regenerative potential 
um, of, uh, of a number of creatures in nature. Um, for example, we know, you know sharks can regenerate their teeth throughout life. We know that certain types of lizards, you can cut off their tail or their you know, whole limb and it will completely regrow. Um, and then we know, you know birds and, and uh, amphibians like frogs and toads can completely regenerate their hearing throughout life. And so we've been very inspired by this. And during the past um, several years, I've been trying to understand the um, biology of tissue regeneration in the human body. Um, and through these studies, we uncovered um, drugs that can actually um, generate new hair cells in the inner ear to potentially restore hearing. There's uh, you know, 48 million people in the US um, that have uh, hearing deficits, and uh, there are no drugs that are currently available um, to, to treat people with hearing loss. Uh, and we're, our hope is that, um, you know, that the uh, drug combinations that we've come up with um, will be able to restore uh, and regenerate the tissue in the cochlea where you have these hair cells, um, and this will lead to significant improvements in hearing. Um, is there something on the market that you can think of that has been through that process and you can say, you know that thing that we know about or that you use or that it happens when you get surgery, that is inspired by nature. Well, there's a wonderful um, example of a bio-inspired product that I think almost everybody on the planet is probably aware of, or most people, and that's Velcro. Uh, Velcro was a uh, discovery that somebody had when they were walking through the woods and a burr attached to their clothing. Um, they were very curious and had access to an electron microscope. And they went and took a look and they saw it was like these kind of hook and loop structures. The hooks were coming from the surface of the burrs and the loops were in the, the clothing. And they had the idea that maybe this could be a universal adhesive. And so what they did is they went and developed a uh, Velcro, which essentially is a hook and loop structure um, that was inspired by burrs in nature. Bigger than just your lab, where do you think this idea of, you know, biomimicry and inspiration from nature, where do you think it's heading? Are there areas where you think it could particularly, like, be a game changer? I think it can help in almost everything. I mean, we've seen even business businesses that have looked to the Amazon rainforest to see how different creatures, plants and animals live in harmony and what's that communication like and you know where constant inspiration leads to constant innovation, you know? And then even, you know, high-speed trains in in uh, Japan, there's a, the kingfisher bird that has this incredibly aerodynamic beak, and it was modeled after that. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's just almost every industry, there's examples of, of bio-inspiration. And what I find really fascinating is that it's almost like nature is an encyclopedia of solutions, and new chapters are constantly being written as our tools get better and better. So we're able to look at things at higher resolution and look at things we've never looked at before. We're able to uncover new solutions. So I, I see this as really endless possibilities. Jeff Karp is an associate professor at Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital and at Harvard Medical School. And speaking of endless possibilities, we talked a lot longer, but I'm going to mention just one more nature-inspired project that CARP has worked on. It's one that I've mentioned to everyone I know, and it may just be the most unusual one of all. 
So you have to get up very close to the porcupine in order for these quills to uh, to insert. But I think it's definitely a very strong reminder if you've ever encountered a porcupine at a close distance that that will likely be the last time you will ever want to get near one. <laughs> yep, you heard correctly, porcupine quills, which Carp was so impressed by that he put them in his neck. I wanted to just get a sense of like, you know, what that felt like. And I'll tell you what was what was really amazing to me is that you almost don't even need to, you, as soon as you touch the quill to skin, it, it, it inserts immediately into the tissue. So it almost requires close to zero force. It, it, it's remarkable. But as easy and painless as porcupine quills are going in, they're just as bloody and painful coming out. Now, why is this interesting? Well, if you've had surgery, you may have been given surgical staples, and they rip tissue a little. So CARP says you can get bacteria and you can get infections around where the staples went in. Plus, someday, they've got to come out. CARP is working on a staple that will insert like a quill, smoothly, without ripping skin, so there is no place for the infection to start. His goal is to make them completely biodegradable, so over time, they break down rather than ever having to be taken out again. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a whip any size, catches these just like flies. Look out, here comes Spider-Man. Since we first aired this interview, the vascular glue that Jeff Karp mentioned has actually been approved for sale and development by the European Union. You can find more about that on our website at innovationhub.org. When Elliot Jacques was born in 1917, the average man in America lived to 48, and the average woman lived to 54. Jacques was a psychoanalyst, and he was also someone who consulted for businesses, and he coined a term that stuck with us, midlife crisis. Now, when Jacques was born, life's midpoint for Americans was somewhere in your mid-20s. Now, life expectancy in America is 77 for men, 82 for women, and the U.S. is actually outdone by dozens of countries on that front. But that huge increase in longevity brings a different kind of midlife crisis. What if your career is so long that you'll get bored doing the same job for 50 or 60 years? How does it affect your decisions about getting married or having kids if you know you're going to live a fair amount longer than your grandparents did? Andrew Scott is a professor of economics at London Business School, and he says that as lifespans have skyrocketed over the past couple of centuries, our relationships, our jobs, even our stages in life have changed drastically. And it's about to happen again. Andrew Scott is co-author of The Hundred Year Life, Living and Working in an Age of Longevity. Andrew, thanks for being here. My pleasure, and thank you for your interest in the book. So first of all, how long, on average, are children born today in developed countries going to live, you know, versus maybe somebody who is middle-aged today? Yeah. So there's obviously, you know, this is a bit like climate change. How can you predict into the future mm -hmm. uh, current trends? And there's lots of ifs and buts. And we're looking at the average data here and averages conceal an awful lot. But basically, the trend over the last 200 years has been that every 10 years, life expectancy has increased by two or three. So what that roughly means is that you've got a good chance of living another six to nine years longer than your parents. And that really means that children born in the rich countries since 2000 have got a more than 50% chance of living to be over 100. Wow. So 
I don't know if you've done the math, but if you went back a couple hundred years, how long were people living then versus today? Yes, this is where it all gets uh, quite complicated. If you go back 200 years, people would be living to around about mid-40s. That's the life expectancy at birth. So then the question is how long, you know, we've seen huge improvements in infant mortality, which gave a big boost to life expectancy. Then we saw big improvements in dealing with um, cardiac problems and improving Mm -hmm. uh, how we treat and also deal with issues like alcohol and tobacco. So we've seen fantastic improvements in survival rates for those who are middle-aged. And what we're now seeing is big improvements in both um, survival rates and fitness for those in their 70s, 80s and 90s. So the result is that the fastest growing age group now is basically people aged over 100. It's obviously growing from a very low base. There's a big debate about how long this can carry on for. Uh, the oldest person ever to have lived was a, a French lady who lived to the age of 122. So we know that that's possible. But of course, there are those around who argue that the first person to live to 500 has already been born, given the developments in science. But I think if you look at the data and the current trends, you know, I'm 51. If you look at someone born today, they've probably got another 10 years of life on me. And if you look at UK data, my life expectancy is around about 89.90. So someone mm. born today has a very real chance of living to 100. And, and that's the average. There'd be many people living beyond that. Which is incredible in some ways that somebody born while you are still alive, right, has such a, a much longer expected lifespan than you do. I mean, that, that's an incredible shift in, we're not talking thousands of years, we're talking 50, 60 years. No, it is. And, and and we kind of feel that what's really happened is that because so many people base longevity on what their parents or what their grandparents do, we're kind of missing out on things. And, you know, the, the thesis that we have in the book is that we've really designed a, a life that works over 70 years, but isn't going to be able to be stretched to 100 years. And, you know, there's lots of metaphors you can use here. Most people mistakenly think about this longevity issue is about what you do at the end of life. But we think you're going to redesign all of life. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if life is no longer a 10-mile race, but a 15-mile race, you have whole new tactics and whole new stages. And, of course, you hit the old milestones at different points in time, which is one reason we think people are getting married later, buying cars, right. buying houses, right. having children later. So uh, let me just go back for a minute. If over the last couple of hundred years, um, our lifespans have increased from, let's say, roughly 40 to roughly 80, huge increase. How yeah. have we redesigned our lives, um, if we have, to accommodate that enormous amount more time that we have. So it's it's really interesting, isn't it? We, we think of time as being something quite fixed, but you know, time is in so many ways a social convention. And I think over the last 200 years, you see two ways in which time has been structured. One is around the Industrial Revolution and the working week and the weekend. But the other one, which I think is really interesting, is the 20th century saw the invention of two new stages of life, two stages of life that didn't exist before. That was teenagers and that was retirees. For most of human history, you just had children and then you became an adult. But as we live for longer, as schooling was extended, we had this sort of intermediate stage of adolescence. And it took a long while for society to work out what to do with them. And eventually they hit upon the concept of the teenager, which is somewhat now recognized. And then, of course, what people used to do was just work until they died. And that wasn't a happy ending because as you get older, you do get more frail. So you earn less. 
you worked all the time, but you were financially insecure. You'd often have to live in the house with your children, which wasn't a happy experience for both sides. And then in the 20th century, we invented this concept of retirement and said people should be able to have a time at the end of their life in leisure where they're financially secure. So that was two stages that were invented, I would say, because longevity was now going out to 70. Now it's going out to 100. We think there will be whole new stages of life being uh, created and not just teenagers and retirees, but other stages as well. I'm Kara Miller talking to Andrew Scott, author of The 100-Year Life, Living and Working in an Age of Longevity. So as the lifespan then goes from, let's say, 75, 80 to 100, what is going to happen just as adolescence and retirement were two stages of life that simply, you know, if you had talked to people about that a couple hundred years ago, they, they would have looked at you with a blank stare. What are we creating now that, that people today would think, huh, that's interesting. That's a new stage of life. So there's a number of interesting things there. So let me tell you some of the new stages that we think we can see emerge, although I think we're set for a big period of experimentation. Just as it took sort of 80 years to really nail the concept of the teenage years, it may take a long while to find out what the new stages are. So one one, uh, I think, is actually sort of a post-teenage period between the ages of 18 and 30. Um, the, the date at which people take on what have traditionally been full adult responsibilities, by which I mean a job, a house, a family, etc., has been pushed right back. So in the early 60s, by the age of 21, 50% of Americans were married. Hmm. Now, uh, it's 28 is the age at which 50% of Americans are married. And, you know, I look at pictures of my father when he's 14. He looks incredibly old. He's wearing a suit and tie. He has a job. He's paying He's paying rent. Uh, and then you know, I didn't really pick up those responsibilities till my early 20s. And I look at my children, who I love dearly, but I think I can't see them picking up those responsibilities to the late 20s. No, I mean, I have to say, it's really true. I mean, my, my grandmother got married when she was 20, which seems terribly young to me now. But I don't think in her world that was... You know, that she was getting married at a different time than, I mean, you know, it, it seemed exactly. logical. Well, we follow our social role models. And I think I think there's two reasons why we're seeing this sort of um, lengthening, lengthening of the time before you take on adult responsibilities. Some of them are negative. You know, the houses are expensive. People mm-hmm. have got student debt. It's hard to get on the job market. So there's some negative right. forces at work. But I think there also are some positive ones. And the way we look at it is as follows, which is that, over a longer life, options become more valuable. If you look, in financial markets, you can buy an option to buy a sh- uh, share. And uh, that becomes more valuable the longer over which the period it's held. And over a longer life, options are more important. You don't want to cash in so early. Mm-hmm. So whereas my father might say this is a generation that lack commitment, I would say they're probably investing in options. They're finding out <laughs> what they like, what they're good at, and they're saying, I've got this very long life ahead of me. Right. This used to be a 10-mile race. It's a 15-mile race. I'm not going to go flat out from an early stage. I'm going to meander around a little bit. So kind of a new age of entrepreneurship, which interestingly, I think you're also seeing in people age 60 plus. A lot of people are saying, well, look, I'm still fit and healthy. I haven't got enough money to sort of in my pension to last me through to 90 or 100. So I don't want to touch my pension yet. I don't want to work full time, but I'm quite interested in doing something that is a bit about me and a bit more uh, interesting, a bit more entrepreneurial. So you're seeing the same sort of behavior actually in people in their 60s, which I think is Hmm. interesting. Yeah, no, that's a really salient point i think because the you know the meaning of what it means to be quote unquote old i think 
has to change because, exactly. you know, people used to retire at 65, you know, and, and here in the States where when Social Security was passed, people got Social Security for a couple of years and then on average they died. Um, yeah. And now it's the beginning of a whole, you know, very, very often multi-decade period of your life. So, you know, are you old at 65? I'm not sure. Ah, it's brilliant. So I think we see there's all sorts of things that need to change. And we're so wedded to certain numbers having a significance that, oh, you're old. Mm -hmm. Now, I I worry that as I get older, this is just me trying to pretend I'm young. But I don't (laughs) think so. You know, know, what what people do. So give me an example. Uh, Divorce rates are falling in general. Uh, but they're rising here for those in their 60s, 70s. And the fastest growth rate is happening from people in their 80s. The highest so divorce rate is... is the, the highest growth, growth in, is the highest growth in, in divorce rates is in the 80s. Now, that's starting from a very, very low base. Hence, the growth is very, very high. But, you know, clearly, you know, what people associate with certain numbers changes when you live to 100 and not 70. The other thing we think is important is that over a longer life, we don't think a three-stage life of education, work, and retirement can work. We think we talk about a multi-stage life, and a multi-stage life probably involves different career paths. Sometimes just working for money. Sometimes a bit more of a work-life balance. Other times maybe doing something more for society. But you're going to go through a lot more transitions, and we we like this idea of what we call juvenescence. So adolescents are very good at change. Adults typically aren't. But over a longer life, you're going to have to go through more change. So we think people are being more juvenescent. So for a whole host of reasons, we think that you're going to see a lot more flexible career paths. And with that comes the end of the stigma, because in a three-stage life, measured out over 70 years, you have what we call lockstep. You know, you tell me you're 20, I kind of know what you're doing in life. You tell me you're 40, I know what you're doing in life. And everyone does it at the same time. And if you fall out of lockstep, people treat it very suspiciously. Mm -hmm. But we think, because you can have a multi-stage life and you can sequence that life in many different ways. You know, you could do your money-making career from 20 to 30 or from 40 to 50. And so because you're going to sequence things in different ways, we'll begin to see the end of lockstep. I think it's going to create some very interesting uh, career issues, both for individuals and for firms, because people will have different priorities at different points in life. You could be an undergraduate at 20, 40 or 60. You could be a senior manager at 30, 50 or 70. So there's an awful lot of change to lockstep uh, coming, we think. How are governments thinking about this, dealing with this? It seems like, uh, first of all, a terrible strain on governments. And second of all, they have to think about everybody, the people who are putting away 10 or 20 percent a year and the people who are putting away nothing a year, maybe because they're not thinking about retirement, but maybe they are and they just they can't, you know, they're paying everything to live in the houses they're in and to eat and, you know, transportation and all that. And at the end of the week, there's just nothing left. One of the things we try and do in the book is to be almost irritatingly positive. We try and say this is a massive opportunity um, because if we do redesign life, we think this is just a fact. Yeah, most people want more time. We are on average living longer and we're healthier for longer. This should be a massive positive for us. So the fact that many people, when we tell them this, sort of groan and say, oh, my God, uh, we just seem to have something, you know, that can't be right. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to be a very positive thing about what the options are. And I do think governments need to create a more positive 
atmosphere around this. Because at the moment, most of the debate is about you can't afford a pension and you're going to get Alzheimer's. None of which people want to engage with. It's all about a bad end of life. Whereas we think this is about all of life. The inequality issues, I think, are terribly, terribly worrying. The natural thing to do will be to raise retirement age because we can't afford to pay state or private pensions at 60 if people are living to 100. The only trouble is if those with lower income are uh, have life expectancy of 75 or 80, you then run the danger of actually removing retirement for that group, which would be terrible. Mm-hmm. So you kind of need to do two things. One is how do we increase life expectancy for everyone? And secondly, how do we make sure that retirement just doesn't come a preserve of the better off? So that is a massive challenge because you can however unpopular it is politically, you can always take money from the rich and give it to the poor, but you can't take years of life from the rich and give it to the poor. Mm -hmm. So this is about public education, it's about nutrition and health, availability of food, fitness and um, medical resources. And that's a really challenging agenda that I think will get more and more up the agenda. Right now, people are focusing on income inequality, But when income inequality leads to 20 years differences in life expectancy, we'll start to see much more around it. Andrew Scott is professor of economics at London Business School. He's also the co-author of the book, The Hundred Year Life, Living and Working in the Age of Longevity. Andrew, thank you so much. My pleasure. It's been great fun to talk. On our Facebook page, we've got a great story for you about a super successful 95-year-old inventor. That's at facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugarts. Also, a big welcome to our new listeners on WYPR in Baltimore and WITF in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We are thrilled to have you with us. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, danafarber.org slash beatcancer. And from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. PRI, Public Radio International.